Let's start by reciting a scripture together that we all know. You don't know it by its textual reference, but you know it by the Lord's Prayer. After this manner, therefore pray ye, our Father, together, okay? Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Hold, hold it just a moment for that right there. Did, did you hear what you just said? And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Do you want God, Jesus, to forgive you the way you forgive other people? <laughs> That's an interesting standard, isn't it? Forgive our debts as we have forgiven others. We're asking God to treat us the way we treat others. Dear God, thank you for forgiving me of my mistakes that I've made, but please don't treat me any different than I've treated the other people that have asked forgiveness of me. Don't forgive me if I've not forgiven others. That's quite a risk. That raises a whole new standard about how we relate with each other, doesn't it? The boss that fired you, the coworker that lied about you, the spouse that cheated on you, the parents that abused you. You want God to treat you the way you are forgiving those people? That sounds like the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. This is our prayer. Our Father, which art in heaven, do unto us as we have done to others. Treat me no different than I've treated my enemies. You might be tempted to say, well, that's, you know, Elder Beats, that's not exactly what is meant here. You know, there's, there's some exegetical differences here that this doesn't really mean that. But, you know, we're not talking about an isolated phrase in the, word, in the Lord's Prayer. For the verses immediately following the Lord's Prayer reinforce this phrase, Matthew six fourteen to 15. For if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. In other places, Jesus seems to apply the same standard. Note Matthew 7. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And the measure you use will be measured unto you. The way you judge others is how you will be judged. The way you forgive is the way you will be forgiven. That doesn't seem fair. Because for the Lord to use me as an imperfect standard in terms of how he treats me, if the standard God uses to judge me is the standard I use on others, I'm in trouble. If the forgiveness I receive at the hand of God is the same as I extend to others, I don't have a much of a chance, I'm afraid. So how do we understand this? I believe that the prayer is saying that the way I treat others 
do I forgive them, is a measure of my acceptance of God's forgiveness of me. It's a measure of my understanding of grace. My attitude of forgiveness communicates whether I've received forgiveness. There's no quicker way to learn if I've received God's forgiveness than to measure my forgiveness of others. My forgiveness of others is a thermometer of my understanding of grace. It's a scale of my connection with Jesus. Because if I truly understand how much I've been forgiven, I am then capable of forgiving others. It isn't that God keeps a record every time I'm unforgiving. And then when I go to him for forgiveness, he gets out a notebook and says, well, according to my tally sheet, on March 28, you didn't forgive Mr. Smith, and he was critical, and you held a grudge against him. Therefore, I'm going to hold a grudge against you, and I'm not going to forgive you. Your forgiveness balance is in debt, so I'm not going to forgive you. Now, what the Lord's Prayer is telling us is that we show our colors by how we treat others. We show our hearts by how we forgive others. We demonstrate our understanding of grace by how graceful we are toward each other. And so, as we talked about this morning, we are able to love our enemies when we understand that we have been loved by God. We're able to forgive our enemies when we understand that we have been forgiven by God, when we experience that forgiveness. Matthew 18, Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times? Using the math of tit for tat, Peter thought he was being pretty generous. Jesus answered, I tell you not seven times, but 77 times, or some translations say 70 times seven. Basically, what's saying is Christians don't do math. It doesn't matter how many times. Matthew 18, 23, there's an interesting story of a servant that uh, Jesus tells. Peter came to Jesus and asked the Lord how many times, and then this is the story that follows. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children all had to be sold to repay the debt. The servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, a couple of bucks. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay me back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me, I'll pay you back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all the debt that was yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? 
In anger, his master turned him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all that he owed. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. Why was the servant not able to forgive the very small amount? He didn't appreciate the forgiveness that he'd received. Do we appreciate the forgiveness that we've received? You know, we can have a temptation to look around and say, well, you know, I'm, I'm as good as Bill, and I'm, I'm as good as Susan, and I, I don't beat my wife and kick my kids and yell at the dog. I'm, I'm a pretty nice guy, so I don't really need that much forgiveness. When we comprehend how distant we are from God in our natural state, then we'll understand how much we desperately need the grace of God, and then we'll be able to give it to others. I forgave you a huge debt. What I did for you is an illustration of how you should treat each other. Why this kind of a quid pro quo? God is saying, you forgive others, I forgive you. If I don't forgive others, it shows that I have not accepted the forgiveness God gives me. I have not experienced grace. We're forgiven by God, and if we understand the implications of that, if we grasp our debt to God and the grace he has given to us, we are empowered to give it to others. As one person said, we pardon in the degree that we love. We are empowered to forgive because we have experienced forgiveness. Now, of course, living gracefully with forgiveness when the offense is someone cutting you off on the freeway is one thing, but when your spouse runs out on you, that's a whole different ballgame. Forgiveness when it's a small thing is one thing, but when your business partner steals you blind... Living gracefully when a false rumor circulates about you is one thing, but when someone murders your child? Living gracefully when your boss lets you down, but when Hitler engineers ethnic cleansing of your family? I thought of sharing stories like the one of Gail Blount, a 51-year-old woman whose 19-year-old daughter Catherine was brutally murdered and how she 12 years later was able to write to the murderer in prison 12 years ago she said I had a beautiful daughter named Catherine she was a young woman of unusual talents and intelligence radiated love and joy the violent way she left this earth was impossible for me to understand I was saddened beyond belief she went on to explain that through a growing spiritual experience, she was able to move beyond hatred and vengeance to forgiveness and concluded the letter by saying, I'm willing to write to you or visit you if you wish. And she did, subsequent to that time, visit her daughter's murderer in prison. Or I'm sure many of us have heard the stories of Corey Tinboom and her eventual confrontation with the soldier tormentors who tormented her in Germany during the Second World War and her forgiveness of them. But few of us are struggling with forgiving ethnic cleansers or murderers 
What we deal with more frequently are broken relationships, divorce, fractured friendships, broken contracts, unfulfilled expectations, parental abuse, children that are major problems. This is where our understanding of grace and love and forgiveness is tested. In case you haven't noticed, Christianity is a religion in which the sinners have all the advantages. They step on your feet 50 times and you're supposed to keep smiling. They steal your car and you're supposed to fill it with gas before they leave. They steal your blouse and you give them the matching skirt. They cut off, cut you in, cut off in front of you in line and you thank them for going ahead of you. We love our enemies. We treat our enemies as we would like to be treated. How can we live like that? We've been forgiven. And God expects us to do the same to others that he has done to us. Unforgiveness. Unforgiveness is a boomerang that makes us feel good when we throw it, but returns with a vengeance cutting our heart out. Righteous anger and indignation is so invigorating that it makes forgiveness seem like milquetoast weakness in comparison. It feels good to be right when the other person is wrong. It feels good to lash out at the erring one. I gave them a piece of my mind. The great benefit of having such an enemy is that he makes you look good by comparison. It's also good to have someone to blame for your life not turning out the way you thought it should. There's a masochism that wants to punish the offender. We wallow in our pain, resisting extending the hand of forgiveness. He needs to learn a lesson. How's he going to learn a lesson if I just let it go? I don't want to encourage irresponsible behavior, but forgive them and they're going to do it again. I'll let her stew for a while. It'll do her good. She needs to learn a lesson. She needs to learn that actions have consequences. You can't just do stuff like that and expect that everything will be hunky-dory. I was the wronged person. It's not up to me to make the first move. They're the ones that need to ask forgiveness, not me. How can I forgive if he's not even sorry? As an article in Christianity Today suggested, staying angry with you is how I protect myself from you. It's also how I keep you from getting close enough to hurt me again, and nine times out of ten it works. Only there's a serious side effect. It's called bitterness, and it can do terrible things to the human body and to the soul. Bitterness can eat our hearts out. Revenge, anger, bitterness is a poison It's the boomerang that cuts back on us. It's resentment that grows against the people that injured us. Resentment. The word means to feel again. Ressentiment. It's a French word. Imagine for a moment that I am working with my wife in the kitchen and she gives me a knife to cut up the tomatoes. So I get the tomatoes, I put it on the cutting board, and because I know that our knives around the house are pretty dull, I push really hard. Well, it goes right through the tomato like a hot knife through butter into my finger. And instantly I'm 
bleeding. And she said, oh, I forgot to tell you I sharpened the knife. <laughs> okay, well, here we are. I'm, I feel this hurts. What am I going to do? So we go to the bathroom, run water over it. We wrap a paper towel around it. We put a Band-Aid on it. We fix it up, and she says, I'm sorry, and I say, I'm sorry, too. <laughs> and, uh, and we go on our way. The next day, I remember the event, and so I take the band we take the bandaid off, and she looks at it and she says, "Well, that's healing really good." And I take my finger and I pull it apart and say, "No, look, it's bleeding again." That's what we do when we recall those events. When we recall that bitterness, we take the wound and we open it up. And if we continue to do that, it develops pus, it develops infection, it infects our lives with bitterness and hostility. Having an emotional injury that we're not willing to forgive infects our life, resentment, feeling it again and again and again. Can we pray the Lord's Prayer with sincerity and forgive our debts as we forgive our debtors. If the Lord's Prayer is to be our prayer, what kind of communities would we have? What kind of churches would we have? When somebody paints the kindergarten room the wrong color, how does that build up resentment in us? What kind of families would we have? It would be a community that's godlike, where we're full of grace. A church that's godlike, families that were heaven on earth, loving our enemies, accepting the injured, forgiving debtors, like the Cheers poem song that we mentioned this morning, where everybody feels encouraged, accepted. It's easy to say, forgive our debts as we forgive our debtors, but we repeat the Lord's Prayer with little thought. Easy to say, more difficult to do. The more time we spend with Jesus, the more natural it becomes to treat people like Jesus would treat them. <clears throat> what is the job of Christians? It's to treat people like Jesus would. We want people to, uh, to meet Jesus. They, who do they meet Jesus in? Us. That's how they meet Jesus. How can you live like that? Because I know Jesus. The human tendency is to say, yeah, I'll forgive them when they ask. I'll forgive them when they say they're sorry. I'll forgive them when they show some remorse. I'll forgive them when they crawl to me and say, you were right, I was wrong. Then I'll forgive them as I feel a sense of selfish superiority. The Christian forgives before she is asked. The Christian forgives if she is never asked. For on the cross, Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The soldiers didn't ask for forgiveness, but they received it. They were forgiven. For some of them, that forgiveness was accepted, and it changed their lives. For some of them, the forgiveness probably was not accepted, and that they, their lives were not changed. Does anybody here own a, uh, a dog? You own a dog? What kind of dog is it? It's a Pomeranian. What's your dog's name? Sadie. Sadie? Pomeranian Sadie. 
Let's imagine for a moment that I'm driving by your house on my way to work. I go there pretty much every day. And is Sadie generally outside or in the house? Half and half. This time she was outside. I'm driving a little faster maybe than I should, and Sadie's in the street where she shouldn't be, or he shouldn't be, he or she, she shouldn't be. I hit Sadie and kill her right in front of your house. I really feel badly, not quite as badly as you do, undoubtedly, but I jump out of the car, I go over, I pick Sadie up, I go to the door, I ring the doorbell and say, I'm sorry, I killed your dog. Well, you say there's not a lot that we can do about it. Uh, It's a dead dog, so I help you bury it. We go to the garage, we get a shovel, we go to your backyard, we make a little hole in the ground and bury Sadie, and feeling badly, I, I go on home. I drive by your house every day, so next day I go by, and again, you know, it strikes me as I'm driving by how how difficult that was and how difficult it was for you and for me and feeling really badly, and so I stop. I go to the garage, and I, I get your shovel, and I dig Sadie up, and I bring her to the front door. I ring the doorbell and say, I really feel badly. I ran over your dog yesterday. <laughs> and you say... I thought that was yesterday. Yes, but I really feel so bad. I said, let's bury it. And so you say, yeah, I agree. Let's bury it. Let's bury it where you can't find it next time. (laughs) So we go and bury the dog, and I go on to work. A couple days later, I'm driving by again. I still feel badly, so I go to your garage. I get a shovel, and I find him again, and I dig him up, and I bring him to the front door. I really feel badly I hit your dog. Who can't I forgive? I can't forgive myself. And that's the person that you most need to forgive, yourself. When we can't forgive ourselves, we can't forgive others. When we can't forgive ourselves, we have not experienced grace. When we can't forgive ourselves, then we're not able to extend love and grace and forgiveness to others. So... Don't dig up any buried dogs, particularly Sadie. (laughs) Forgiveness is a state of mind. It's an attitude of the heart. It's an experience of grace. It's not an abracadabra that I repeat over some infraction. It's not a formula or a phrase that erases all guilt. Forgiveness isn't something we save for times when people come to us on bended knee and say, please forgive me, forgive me. It's an experience of life. It's an experience of grace instead of ungrace. A life of love instead of unlove. A life of grace that doesn't keep records. Clara Barton, the founder of the American Red Cross, was reminded one day of a vicious deed that someone had done to her years before. But she acted as if she'd never heard of it. Don't you remember it, her friend asked. No, came Barton's reply. I distinctly remember forgetting that. And that's what we have to do. Distinctly remember to forget and forgive. Ellen White says, when we are lost in Christ, we do not take neglect to heart. We are deaf to reproach 
and blind to scorn and insult. I have a long way to travel before I am blind to scorn and insult. And I guess I'm not quite lost in Christ enough. The life of grace allows us to treat others as God has treated us. It empowers us to open our hearts to those who've injured us. Even as God died for us while we were yet sinners. And so we open our hearts to people who have injured us even though they're the ones who did the injury. It's a life-transforming attitude. In The Essential Calvin and Hobbes, the cartoon character Calvin says to Hobbes, I feel bad I called Susie names and hurt her feelings. I'm sorry I did it. Maybe you should apologize, Hobbes suggests. Calvin thinks for a moment and then replies, I keep hoping there's a less obvious solution. This forgiveness, this is not pardon. We have to make a distinction here. And we need to be clear about this. I, I gave a sermon on forgiveness when there was a friend of mine whose daughter was murdered who came to me and said, what is my responsibility to this person who murdered my daughter? Should I expect him to get out of jail? And I said, absolutely not. You're not pardoning the person. You're simply for your own mental well-being not taking the responsibility. Forgiveness is not pardon. Forgiveness is not necessarily reconciliation. You're not committed to renewing a relationship with a person. Sometimes reconciliation would be bad. There can be abusive relationships that you should not necessarily get back into that relationship. You should not necessarily spend time with that person. That doesn't mean, however, that you can't be relieved of the bitterness, anger, and hostility in your own heart in relationship to that person. This forgiveness is not submission. You're not choosing to be milk toast in a relationship, just submit to anything evil that's done to you. It is simply allowing God's grace to fill your life. This forgiveness is an attitude of grace, seeking to understand the other person and letting go letting go of bitterness. It's an attitude of agape love. What are those things that tend to stress you out, that cause stress in your life? Let's look at some of those stresses that press on our psychological health. How do you relate to the person whose road rage cuts you off at the freeway off-ramp? Or who overcharges you for the work they did? or whose restaurant gives you food poisoning, (laughs) or whose repair on your car left it in worse shape than when you took it in, or whose gossip is a pack of lies about you. How do you relate to life experiences that leave you on the short end of the stick? I received one of those long critical letters. People are saying this about you, people are saying that about you, this is wrong with you, that is wrong with you, It must have gone on for five pages. Actually, if they knew everything I knew, it could have gone on for ten pages. (laughs) And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. How do we get over it? We don't get, we get over it. We never get on it. We don't function under the law of reciprocity. There's no tit for tat. 
eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. We treat others as God treats us, not as they treat us. Our standard for relating to others is not how they treat us, but how God treats us. So we treat other people the way God treats us. Forgiveness, a thermometer of my understanding of grace, a scale that measures my connection to Jesus. So in many ways that we are taken advantage of don't leave a mark on our souls. Christians have Teflon hearts. The offense never sticks. Les Miserables is a French historical novel by Victor Hugo. It was first published in 1862. It's considered one of the greatest novels of the 19th century. The novel examines the nature of law and grace and follows the lives and interactions of several characters, particularly the struggles of ex-convict Jean Valjean and his experience of redemption. And this movie clip is just a little piece of that story. We could kill the lights, maybe. Is anybody there? I don't want to hear anything more about it. I'm sorry to disturb you. You caught him. But I had my eye on this man. Oh, thank God. I'm very angry with you, Jean Valjean. What happened to your eye, Monseigneur? Didn't he tell you he was our guest last night? Oh, yes. After we searched his knapsack and found all this silver, he claimed <laughs> that you gave it to him. Yes, of course I gave him the silverware. But why didn't you take the candlesticks? That was very foolish. Madame Gillot, fetch the silver candlesticks. They're worth at least 2,000 francs. Why did you leave them? Hurry. Monsieur Valjean has to get going. He's lost a lot of time. Did you forget to take them? Are you saying he told us the truth? Of course. Thank you for bringing him back. I'm very relieved. Release him. really letting me go? Didn't you understand the bishop? Madam Gino, offer these men some wine. They must be thirsty. Thank you. And don't forget. Don't ever forget. You've promised to become a new man. Promise? Why are you doing this? Jean Valjean, my brother, you no longer belong to evil. With this silver, I bought your soul. 
I've ransomed you from fear and hatred. And now I give you back to God. And of course, that is a story of how that experience of receiving grace from the priest transformed the rest of his life. Don't give people what they deserve. Give them that which will save them. Love and grace. Don't give people what they deserve. Give them that which will save them. There's a story that is not theologically accurate, but that is an interesting story that does tell, I think, a a significant truth that is a man died and, and went to heaven, and you know that that doesn't happen right away. And he went to St. Peter at the gates of, of heaven, and he uh, and St. Peter looked over his credentials and said he, had, he was fine and he could go into heaven, and he opened the gate and said, come on in. And the man said, no, I'd really like to go to hell first because I think I could really appreciate heaven more if I went to hell first. I really want to go. And St. Peter said, no, 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 you don't want it to go to, not at all. You, you, you're, you have, your credentials are okay. Come on into heaven. No, no, the man said, I really want to go to hell. Finally, pleading long enough, he convinced St. Peter, and St. Peter <clears throat> contacted an angel guide and said, come over here, take this man down to see hell. And so they went over to a long staircase, and they went down this long staircase, down, 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 and finally they came to a sign that said hell, and he went into hell. And he looked around. It was beautiful. There were ponds with swans and green grass and trees. And it's a beautiful place. And he turned to the angel guide. He said, what's... And the angel guide said, just wait. So he showed him around there, and they went and found a long building that was in hell, <clears throat> and he walked into the building with the man, and when he went into the building, he saw a table stretched as far as the eye could see with the most delicate things to eat you could imagine. All the most delicious food imaginable was there, and he still didn't understand, and the angel guide said, well, look more closely, and as he looked closely, he found that all of the inhabitants of hell had their arms were stiff and bound behind their backs. They couldn't bend their elbows, and they couldn't get that food to their mouths. And so they were in the presence of all this beauty and this food. They were starving to death. So that was really hell. And the man said, oh, I understand why hell's so terrible. Please take me to heaven. I will be much better appreciate heaven. And so the angel guide took him up the long staircase. They went past St. Peter into heaven, and heaven looked an awful lot like hell did, green rolling hills and swans on lakes and so forth. And they had a building there that looked exactly like the one in hell. And he went into the building and stretched as far as the eye could see was all this food, this delicacies. But the difference here, everybody was laughing and enjoying and eating and having a wonderful time. And as he looked closer, he noticed that all of their arms were also, they couldn't bend them at the elbows and their arms, they couldn't get the food to their mouths. And he looked at his angel guide and said, what's the deal here? And the angel guide said, oh, the only difference between heaven and hell is here they feed each other. And that's the only difference between heaven and hell. 
Hell is where we are so self-focused in a black hole of selfishness that we are unable to reach out to each other with love and grace. And heaven is where we have learned to feed each other and where we are able to extend grace and forgiveness to each other no matter what the particular transaction happens to be. I'd like you all to think of someone. Think of someone that you have an, a, a, maybe a little bit of a broken personal relationship with. It doesn't have to be huge. It doesn't have to be someone that's divorced or someone who murdered your child or some big thing. Just someone that you know there's something between you that is not right. Think of that person by name. And we're going to remember that person in prayer. Eternal Father in heaven, we've each thought of someone that we really probably could extend grace to. We could maybe show some of the love that you showed to, to us, to this person. I would like to forgive, and then you enter the name of that person. I'd like to forgive you enter the name, fill in the blank. I want to have things clean between us. I do not want to experience bitterness, anger, or hostility anymore. In the name of your Son, amen. And now, take some time over the next week or two to do something to let that person know that things have changed between the two of you. Maybe a note, maybe invite them out to eat, maybe a telephone call, who knows. But some way to express the fact that you do not hold bitterness, you do not hold hostility or anger anymore at all, but you have freely let go of the boomerang that could cut your own heart out. Thank you.